0: As we come now before God's word, you can turn in your Bible if you'd like to follow along to Mark in chapter 12. Mark in chapter 12. There are Bibles there in the pew if you'd like to use those. My translation is the English Standard Version, which is slightly different than the pew translation, but it's essentially the same. And as you turn there, would you please pray with me? Our God, we know that Your word is living and active, that by your word you really do things to our heart. So we ask now that you would work in us by your spirit, bring light to our eyes so that we can understand, convict our hearts of sin, and draw us close to you. By your power would you give us life? We ask these things in Jesus' name, amen. The text is in Mark chapter 12. I'll start in verse 18. And Sadducees came to him, the him there is Jesus, and Sadducees came to him who say that there is no resurrection. And they asked him a question saying, teacher? Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife but leaves no child, the man must take his widow and raise up offspring for his brother. So there were seven brothers, and the first one took a wife, and when he died and left no offspring, the second one took her, and he died, leaving no offspring. And then the third likewise, and the seven left no offspring, and last of all, the woman also died. In the resurrection... When they rise again, whose wife will she be? For the seven had her as wife. Jesus said to them, Is this not the reason you are wrong? Because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God? For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. And as for the dead being raised, haven't you read in the book of Moses, in the passage about the bush, how God spoke to him saying, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. Is he not God of the dead, but of the living? You are quite wrong. This is God's word. So if you've been with us at Big Creek over the past several weeks and months, you know uh, that we're walking through the life of Jesus as recorded in the Gospel of Mark. Jesus is now in his final week of his life on earth as he's headed toward the cross. And this here, the passage we just read, is the third in a series of challenges or traps that the religious authorities sort of set up for Jesus. So the first one, they challenge Jesus' source of authority, and then Jesus responds by saying, essentially, he's the son of the owner, the son of God, that he is the cornerstone. And then last week, they, they bring the challenge of taxes and government, try to really get Jesus tangled up in some sort of political web, and to that Jesus says, give to Caesar what's Caesar's, but to God what's God's. It's a spicy one. If you missed it, you can listen to that one online another time, but here's the third challenge that the religious authorities bring, and this time, they ask him about the resurrection. Really, it's a question of doctrine. Now, that word doctrine sounds kind of funny, or at least it can sound kind of odd to us, and the word doctrine can sound very religious, almost, you know, scholarly, that, you know, really smart people have doctrines, but everybody has doctrines, even if they're not written down. The doctrines, doctrines are a set of beliefs that we hold to be true, so if a person believes that truth cannot be known, that itself is a statement of truth, of belief that itself is a doctrine. Or if someone believes that everyone should seek their own truth, that's a doctrine. Or if someone believes that all paths ultimately lead to truth, that's a doctrine. And none of these doctrines are true, according to the Bible. By the way, those lead down very dangerous paths. So we want our doctrines... Our beliefs, the things we hold to be true, to actually be true. Because our doctrines really set the pathway of life that we walk down. Here... The doctrine that's being addressed is resurrection, basically the idea of an afterlife, and the Sadducees, this uh, group of, of priests, are trying to undermine Jesus in pushing against the reality of the resurrection, but the resurrection is really a central truth to faith. I mean, we say it whenever we say the Apostles' Creed, it's at the end, right? I believe in the resurrection of the body and the life everlasting. Amen. we don't just say that, we hold this to really be true, not only for the afterlife, but to have real, clear implications for our present life. This stuff matters for us. We'll talk about why in a moment, but before we talk about resurrection, really, uh, there's a few stumbling blocks in this text as I go through things that make me go, that's weird. Uh, So I feel like we should kind of address those stumbling blocks and won't be able to talk about them fully, but to briefly kind of pull them out to try to set them out of the way. The first is this conversation about marrying brothers. That could be a stumbling block for some people. That sounds really strange to some people, you know, this woman, her her husband dies, and so she's supposed to marry his brother, and then his brother, and then his brother, it's sort of a strange situation. This was actually according to the Old Testament law. It's in Deuteronomy 25, it was called Leveret Marriage, and it sounds odd to us in a lot of ways, because some of the things that we value in marriage is different. We tend to value things like companionship, and to have a, a, you know, a life partner, And love, and even the physical parts of marriage. And that is true in an Old Testament model, but in an Old Testament model of marriage, a big part of marriage was to carry on the family line or the heritage of the name of the family. And so this was good not only to protect the family line, but to protect the woman so that she's not left without a family, without a structure really to support her so that she's not hanging out on a limb by herself. There's much more that can be said about that, but I'll try to at least lay that to rest there. It's not as strange as it might sound. The second stumbling block, or at least potential one, is in verse 25 when Jesus says, when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, that there will not be marriage in the resurrection. That's troublesome to some people. And if that bothers you, that might be a good thing that that bothers you. I'm glad that the thought of not having your spouse in marriage in eternity would feel sad. You know, That's a, that's a good sign of the health of your marriage. But we know in the reality of eternity, there are some marriages that will, will forever be split. That one goes to be with the Lord for eternity, and one is forever separated from the good presence of God for eternity. But even those uh, married couples that are together for eternity, we can fear, fear the loss of the good parts of marriages, fear, fear the loss of companionship and even some aspect of our identity, and, and, and fear the loss of the physical part of marriage. So so we go, okay, if eternity doesn't have all of this, how is that good? How how would I want that then? C.S. Lewis has a really good discussion on this where he says, uh, he talks about a boy, a young boy, who first hears the general idea of sex and the pleasure of sex, and doesn't really know what that is, but the boy's first question is, well, does it involve chocolate? Because in the boy's mind, the highest pleasure or joy that he knows is chocolate. So if it doesn't involve chocolate, there's no way I could ever want it. He's puzzled because he can't think of joy without chocolate. We know that eternity, then, is not less than marriage. It is beyond marriage. The good, that's good news for us, really for all of us. That's good news if you have a good, thriving, healthy marriage. Because even the goodness that you see in your spouse, eternity will be that much better. It's good news if you struggle in your marriage. If you've had long seasons of wrestle with one another and that you know something about that is broken, eternity will not have that brokenness. And it's good news if you're single. Maybe if you were marriage, married now or not, or if you never marry or aren't married currently, because in eternity you won't be missing out. That our relationship with each other is beyond marriage. We know, the scripture teach us, teaches us that in eternity, with God, we will know one another. We're not just a blob of spirits that are all just kind of uh, smushed together. There's our union then with each other in Jesus, including with other believing spouses, will have joy beyond all our wildest chocolate imaginations. That's a good thing. So don't worry. Don't be afraid. I want to set that stumbling block aside. One last stumbling block. Jesus says at the end of verse 25 that they'll be like angels in heaven, and I want to clear up that he means that we'll be like angels in the sense that, in the sense of marriage. So angels don't marry each other. We will not be marrying each other in heaven. He does not say that we will be angels. We never become angels. We don't sprout wings and harps and whatever else is in our minds about what that is. In eternity, we are humans, but humans renewed. Humans renewed even in our bodies. So there we go, that was my best shot of very quickly kind of setting those aside so that we can see really, because the, the point of this is not to get bogged down by these particular questions, but to really see Jesus' point here, which I think is fairly clear. He's basically saying that the resurrection is real. There actually is an afterlife. And so this group, uh, the Sadducees, which was a a particular group of priests, there were Pharisees and some others, but the Sadducees was this group, had this doctrine that there was no afterlife, so it made the Sadducees very sad, you see. No? I know. I'm a dad now. I have to practice my dad jokes. Uh, No, the reason why I say it, I had an old pastor that used to say that, and I'd be like, Bill, I just groan. Oh, that's so bad. Bad joke, but I've never forgotten it, which is really funny, so I hope that sinks in you. They did not believe in the resurrection, and Luke in Acts 23 says a few, a few other things. They didn't believe in not only resurrection, but they didn't believe in spirits, and they did not believe uh, in angels. So we don't really have souls or anything like that. Essentially, the Sadducees were materialists. What you see is what you get. And it's easy to pick on that and to kind of laugh at that sometimes, but it is very easy for us to slip into a functional materialism. We might believe in things beyond the material, but in our practice it doesn't always look like that, so in the midst of the hubbub of paying bills, we forget the spiritual battles of the evil one. It's very easy for us to talk to other people, but it's Sometimes we struggle to talk to an invisible God. Or we sometimes treat people like objects instead of souls that live on through eternity. It's easy to forget that is that which is beyond what we can see. And Jesus pushes on this idea of materialism at the beginning of his response. He says, "Isn't this the reason you're wrong?" He says, "You're wrong." And at the end, actually, he says, "You're quite wrong." I think that word "quite" is funny there. It sounds very British. Love British people, but they, you know, "You're quite wrong." You know that he would—I don't know uh, how he would say that—but the, the Greek is like, "You're really wrong," he says. And I love. That that Jesus says that because culturally sometimes it's normal to just say everything's true or some things are true for you and you have your truth and your truth is different than mine. Now, your experiences are different than mine, but truth still remains fixed. There are things that are right and there are things that are wrong. And Jesus very kindly says, You're wrong. And if that were the case, wouldn't you want to know? I mean, I respect a person that sometimes tells me I'm wrong. He says they're wrong because of a couple of reasons. One, they're wrong because they don't know the power of God, but also that they don't know the scripture, which is really bizarre because the Sadducees had just quoted from the Old Testament scriptures They're talking about, didn't Moses write this? They're quoting from the Old Testament. But just like Satan had quoted from the Old Testament when he tempted Jesus. And so Jesus is really saying, it's not that you don't know the Bible. You know the Bible, but you don't know it. You look at all the words, but you've you've missed it. It's not that the Sadducees are dumb. It's just that they're not depending on, On the power of God in God's Word, that they're not really looking to God, that they're not really listening for God as they read, as they study, as they look to follow after God. And so they missed it. And Jesus corrects them. He says, don't you know this situation in the bush? There he's talking about the the incident in Exodus 3 where we know, a lot of us know the story. There's the burning bush, and Moses comes before it. Take off your sandals. The place where you're standing is holy ground. And the Lord then calls himself the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. All of these are people at that time, by the way, who were dead, the forefathers who had died. and, And Jesus points out that he says, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Not I was their God back when they were living Jesus is not the God of the dead. God is not the God of the dead, but he's the God of the living. Jesus could have pointed to a number of texts in the Old Testament to really draw out this idea of an afterlife, but to be fair, there was some fuzziness in the Old Testament about it. They didn't really have a clear idea of heaven and hell. There was some distinction. We have a sense of the afterlife that that those who were with the Lord are with him forever and that there are some who are not with the Lord forever. Uh, But the Old Testament picture of the afterlife was a little blurry. And so when Jesus comes into the picture, then he sort of takes the camera lens and twists it a little bit so that we can see the image a little clearer. The reason why he can do that is because Jesus calls himself the resurrection. John chapter 11 You know the story of Lazarus. Lazarus was one of Jesus' buddies. He was good friends with his sisters, and Lazarus died. So Jesus goes to visit the sisters then. And eventually he calls Lazarus back out of the tomb. A lot of you know the story, but this is what he says in John chapter 11, verse 21. He's talking with Lazarus' sister here, Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give it to you. And Jesus said to her, Your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. And Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. That line, I am the resurrection, or that he means by this that all resurrection is basically founded in Jesus. It's based upon Jesus, and so Jesus then will be the one who raises Lazarus and many others up with him in his resurrection. That's, that's a thing that comforts us, not only now, but very often at funerals. We hear a text like this, and for good reason. I mean, when we look at Jesus, who is the resurrection and the life, when we have confidence that there is an afterlife for Christians, that brings a great amount of hope, because God has purpose even in suffering on earth. When we have a belief in the resurrection, that brings a Christian hope, because we know that God will judge injustice. It's not our responsibility, then, to bring vengeance or revenge. When we have a belief in the resurrection, that brings the Christian hope because God will not only bring us back to life, he brings us to new life, different life, better life. And that will not just benefit us later, that benefits us now. Paul talks some about this in what's called the resurrection chapter I'm not going to read the whole thing because, you know, lunch. Uh, But 1 Corinthians chapter 15, you read the whole thing on your own time. It's well worth reading. At the beginning of this chapter, Paul starts off by listing the witnesses that had seen Jesus after he was resurrected from, from the dead. And then he gives this little argument here and see if you can follow the chain of thought as Paul talks about this. 1 Corinthians 15 verse 12, he writes this. Now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection from the dead? If there's no resurrection from the dead, then even Christ, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we we testified about God that he raised Christ Whom he did not raise if it's it's true that the dead aren't raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. Here's Paul's argument, if I can sum it up. He says, if there's no resurrection, then Jesus was not raised. And if Jesus was not raised, our preaching is in vain because it isn't true. Everything that you're hearing from me isn't true. And if that's not true, your faith, and you you base it all on this, that's not true. And if your faith is untrue, two things. You're still in your sin, and dead are just dead. Essentially, if you pull out the block of resurrection, the whole Jenga tower goes down. It takes out all of Christianity, and it takes out all of the gospel. We know that the gospel is this, that we're all sinners, that we have violated God, and as a result of that, have brought on ourselves spiritual and physical death, the very wrath of God. But Jesus, who was sent by God, willingly came, the Son of God, then lived a perfect life in our place, and so was a perfect sacrifice, taking the wrath of God instead of us. And then when he was resurrected, he was resurrected in victorious righteousness. For the Christian, for the one who trusts in Christ by his grace, our sin then is paid for, there is no more debt, no wrath of God left to be paid. And we live by Christ's righteousness. But if there's no resurrection, Jesus lied. And not only lied, he's dead. And so when we, when we die, we just die, and we are not Changed. Now, some people say, wait a minute, Nathan. Even if, even if the resurrection turns out not to be true. Isn't there some good still in being a Christian? Isn't there some good in being like a religious person anyway? I mean, isn't there still like morality there and being a good person? And and we still kind of have community and there's believers and we have potlucks for goodness sake and it's good. Even if the resurrection isn't true, isn't there still some good in this? And that's not what Paul says. Did you hear it at the end of his text in in 1 Corinthians 15? He says, if in Christ we have hope only in this life, we are of all people most to be pitied. Paul says, if the resurrection isn't true, people should pity us. They should look at me and go, poor Nathan, why? Have you heard of the term catfish? I mean, I know you... (laughs) Now you know what catfishing is, but the term, have you heard this? Anyone know what I'm talking about here? The term catfishing, Oh, a couple do. All right, so the, the term catfishing is not just a sit on the edge of a pond and throw a pole out, that's catfishing, but the term culturally um, is when a digital or online relationship turns out to be a lie. Weird, I know that that term is part of it. It came from, uh, there's now a TV show, I think, about this, but it came from a documentary in which there were a group of people where a guy met this family and, and got to know a cor- through Facebook and other avenues this young woman, you know, they're both young people, and, and, and she's... she's Beautiful. Her name's Megan, and she's a musician, and she wrote songs for him, and they talk on the phone, and there's this huge relationship that develops. And so one day, uh, the guy goes to this small town where she lives in Michigan to visit Megan and meets the real person, who's a woman named Angela, who's a middle-aged housewife with a husband and kids. She just completely invented... Megan Wouldn't that be devastating by the way get really emotionally invested. Oh, this she's really great I think I might even be in love and and they've talked they've exchanged he said of 1500 messages over the course of their time together and there's all this investment of of time and attention and money and, and most of all like Emotions and at the end of it, it's all a lie And all you're left with then is a handful of, of clouds and wishes. Wouldn't you pity a person like that? That's what Paul's saying. We know that eternity is not the cosmic retirement, it's not the Winnebago in the sky. There will be joy beyond our imaginations, but eternity is creation renewed. So all that was intentionally, originally good about creation is now good again, and primarily the thing that is renewed, that our relationship with God Almighty is restored again as our highest love, that we love the Lord above all. That, by the way, is what Jesus talks about next. We'll talk about that next week. But in essence, if Christ is not, has not been raised, if Christ is dead, then all of that is a lie. It's a catfish. It's a handful of clouds. So if all that's a lie, what are you doing here in church? I mean, we're worshiping something of our own imagination. We're on a date with an empty chair. If Christ has not been raised, go home. Have a cup of coffee on your porch on Sunday morning and read the newspaper. Or as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, he says, live it up, eat, drink, for tomorrow we die. If Christ has not been raised and for you it does not seem like that big a loss, it is possible that you may not love Jesus at all. If it does not seem like that big a loss, you may not really believe. And if you were quite wrong, wouldn't you want to know? Hmm. That's heavy, I know. But there's good news. We don't have to be sad, you see. Because, as Paul says, and as is really true, Jesus has been raised, In fact, he says, we we saw him. He walked around among us. He is still working and he is still powerful. Jesus is the living son of the living God and he is not the God of the dead. He is the God of the living. So because Christ is alive, he can take dead loves and make them alive. By his grace, he lifts us up to follow him in his resurrection. Jesus is the one that actually grows us in deepening our love for God, grows us in producing joyful obedience to God, grows us in our hope for God, grows us in our rest in God, and we know that we need Jesus' help in this because we cannot do it. The outcome of this is worth it. We can hear... What David says as he sings the psalm in Psalm 16. This is our last words here. A deep belief, real belief in the resurrection produces in us things like this. Psalm 16, starting in verse 8, David says this I have set the Lord always before me, and because he is at my right hand, I shall not be shaken. Therefore my heart is glad, my whole being rejoices, my my flesh also dwells secure. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, the place of the dead, or let your Holy One see corruption. You, God, make known to me the path of life. In your presence there's fullness of joy, and at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. By his resurrection, Jesus gives us so much more than a handful of clouds, so much more than even mountains of chocolate. For all who trust in Christ for salvation, Jesus gives us joyful life forever with him, the risen king. That is quite true. Would you pray with me? Our God, we know that you are the resurrection and the life, the only resurrection and the life. You are the only one who has this sort of power over death. And so we cling to you then for this. Help us to run to you and to say, Lord, change me, make me new, make me alive, not only after death, but alive now. Help me to love you then. And we know that you can, because your power and love are great. Thank you for being our God. And we give you all praise in Jesus' name. Amen.